Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word that was just read. And now, as the word is to be preached, we pray for your spirit's help that we might have a better understanding of this passage and that we might have our hearts prepared to receive whatever you have to say, that we might respond rightly with faith and obedience, that you might be glorified in this moment. Oh, Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, we are concluding our series through the book of Micah. Now, what we've been saying this whole time is that this book is a prophecy of both judgment and restoration. That there's this constant juxtaposition between two seemingly different themes throughout the book. In Micah, we're constantly confronted by the sinfulness of God's people and its opposition to their acts of idolatry and injustice. So judgment is, is predicted or it has already come. And yet, woven throughout the same book are these threads of promise, of promise to pardon and promise to deliver and promise to restore. Now, this juxtaposition could confuse you as a reader. It seems to suggest that God is, is somehow conflicted, not knowing what he wants to do in dealing with his own people. Sometimes he wants to judge them, to punish them, to scatter Israel to the ends of the earth. But then it seems like other times he wants to redeem them. He wants to gather them back together to restore them to their former glory. It seems like God doesn't know what he wants to do with his people. But perhaps... Our confusion stems not in the nature or the character of God, but in us. Perhaps it stems from our limited understanding of him. We can only compare him to what we know, to what we've experienced with other people. And so all the people we know either gravitate towards one or the other. They either gravitate towards judgment, coming, coming hard on you, coming down on you with, with high standards, or they gravitate towards restoration, uh, showing leniency, giving you a second chance. So it's rare to find both impulses perfectly balanced in the same person. But that is what God is like. A lot of people just don't know him well enough. At the end of Micah, we're still scratching our heads wondering, who is this God? Did you notice that question that's posed for us at the end of verse 18? In verse 18, who is a God like you? Now, interestingly enough, that's actually the meaning of Micah's name. His, his name means who is like God. So his name is really meant to convey the incomparable nature of God. It implies that no one is like God. No one is like him. Now, how does Micah describe this incomparable God? Listen to verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? So apparently, he's the kind of God who will treat sinners, rebels, far better than we deserve. He will pardon us when we sin. He will restore us back into right relationship with him and, and back to being useful in service to him and to his kingdom. That is what God is like. But if we just stop right there, if that's the extent of our understanding of who God is, then we have tipped the scale. We are off balance. And so we need to be careful 
Because if we assume that that is all that God is, that pardoning and restoring is the sum total of how he relates to his people, then it becomes real easy to cheapen God's grace, to begin to treat grace as a common and readily accessible object that's there whenever you need it. Oh, don't worry. We tell ourselves whenever we sin, God will forgive. That's just what he does. That, my friends, is what cheap grace says. You know, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who coined the term cheap grace. And this is how he defined it in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. That's cheap grace. He's saying that we have cheapened grace when we quickly forgive ourselves and simply move on. But that attitude ignores repentance and disregards the costly sacrifice that God paid to make that pardon possible. That's treating grace and forgiveness as light and easy things rather than as the precious priceless gifts that they are. This quick embrace of cheap grace If you think about it, it really stems from having already downplayed the seriousness of our sins and the holiness of God. If sin is really not that big of a deal, and if God is not all that particular about holiness, then you can see how easy it is after you've fallen into sin to just pick yourself back up, wipe yourself off, and just try to do better next time. Do you see how all of that can stem from a very imbalanced view of God. What we're missing is that perfect juxtaposition of restoration and judgment of pardon and punishment of mercy and justice. But what we're going to see in this morning's text is that anyone who hopes to, to walk and serve in the light of God's salvation will have to sit and wait in the darkness of his discipline whenever we sin. Our passage can be divided into three sections in verses eight to 10. That's one. Then verses 11 to 17 and then verses 18 to 20. Now for the sake of our argument, I'm going to start actually with verses 11 to 17, the middle section. And I'm going to show you three responses that we ought to have towards this incomparable God that Micah describes for us. So first, the first response is you can hope in the promise of restoration to former glory and mission, but not until second, you accept God's discipline and wait on his deliverance. And then third, you can trust in God's delight to love and to pardon his people. So the first response to God can be drawn from verses 11 to 17. This section has an emphasis on restoration. And notice it's going to be the Lord who's doing all the restoration. Notice in verse 15 that he speaks in the first person, declaring what he is going to do for his people. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. So our response to his initiative is to hope that what he declares will come to pass. And that's our first point. We are to hope in the promise of restoration to former glory and mission. 
Now recall with me the historical background of Micah. Before the days of the divided kingdom, Israel was at its peak of national glory. Under King Solomon's reign, the nations of the earth were drawn and attracted to Jerusalem to marvel, not just at the riches of the kingdom or the wisdom of their king, but ultimately to marvel at the glory of the God of Israel. In 1 Kings 10, the story of the visit of the Queen of Sheba, that just epitomizes this entire phenomenon of the nations coming to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was functioning very much as a city on a hill, as a lamp on a stand, shining its light, drawing in and attracting all the peoples of the earth for the sake of the glory of God. That was her mission to be a blessed people that serves to bless the nations by shining God's light and drawing God people to drawing people to God. But, you know, after Solomon, after the nation divided into a northern and southern kingdom, after the invasion of the Assyrians that utterly wiped out the north and threatened to do the same thing to the south, its capital city of Jerusalem found herself in a very different position. Now she was a city under siege. All around were world powers threatening her existence. The Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians. Jerusalem looked more like a fading lamp in an ever darkening world. God's kingdom on earth had shrunk down all the way to just one remaining city, one that was about to be extinguished. But as we've seen throughout this book, there will always be glimmers of hope. These promises of restoration. And that is what we find in verse 11. Listen to these hopeful words. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. Friends, that hopeful day will usher in greater security and influence for Israel. Walls, we're told, will be built and boundaries will be extended. Now, I don't think that's referring to any imperialistic ambitions on their part. It's just saying that Israel's reach and influence will expand further than it ever has before. Look at verse 12 with me. That landmass it's describing is the region that covers the empires of the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians. The river, there is a reference to the Euphrates River, which runs through the Babylonian Empire. So all three empires are referenced here. What Micah is saying is that the remnant of the people of the Lord, though they may be very small now, will grow in influence and, and all the nations, these threatening world powers around you will one day be drawn to you, to be attracted to you. Now, some will be drawn to Israel in shame and defeat. And that's communicated for us in verse 16 to 17. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They'll lay a hand on their mouths. They'll stop their ears. They'll lick the dust. They'll come crawling and trembling in fear and dread. That's going to be one outcome for the non-believing world. But notice how others from among the nations will be drawn to God in godly fear and faith. 
That's what I think verse 12 is emphasizing in particular. It's related to Israel's original mission to be that light in this world, to draw and to attract the peoples of the earth to the Lord. And we're promised here in verse 12, a restoration of that mission from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain, people will come to the city of the Lord. Now, the big question is, when is this promise? When is this prophecy to be fulfilled? I think that's the interpretive challenge throughout Micah and throughout reading other prophetic books. Have they already been fulfilled in the events of history or are these things waiting to be fulfilled for a future day that is beyond us? Honestly, friends, I think it's both. I think these prophecies have been partially fulfilled and they're currently being fulfilled and they await a future final fulfillment. So when it comes to verses 11 to 17, I think it's safe to say that the prophecy of a day for rebuilding your walls and extending your boundaries was fulfilled partially in the remnants return from Babylonian exile and the rebuilding of Jerusalem under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel. And this drawing together of the nations is fulfilled partially at the birth of Christ. When Gentile wise men who are most likely coming from the region of Babylon were drawn to Judah by a literal light. And again, it's fulfilled partially on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter two, verses nine to 11. There we're told that people from the very regions of the former empires of the Assyrians, Egyptians, and Babylonians were actually present in Jerusalem to witness another birth. This time, the birth of the church, the body of Christ. And over 3000 people were drawn to the Lord on that day. And even today, even today, we can say that this drawing together of the nations is being fulfilled currently in the mission of the church. To, we have a mission to be that city on a hill, that, that lamp on a stand, shining out our light. This time, not just staying put and, and, and having people come to us, but now taking that light even to the nations. Now that the church is an entity Unlike Jerusalem, without walls, without boundaries, we don't have to wait for the nations to come to wherever we are located. No, the mission of the church today is to take the same light of God, but to bring it to the nations, to bring it to the darkest of darkness, wherever it's found, even to the ends of the earth. So church, I, I hope you see that this is God's grace to us that he would redeem and restore sinners like us into an inheritance of glory and a position of honor to serve the world on a mission to bring gospel light to the darkest of darkness among the nations. We don't deserve this glory. We don't deserve the honor of this calling, but that my friends is God's promise. And that's his prophecy here. It's a prophecy to be fulfilled fully on the day of the Lord, a future final day described for us in Revelation 19, where the unbelieving peoples of the world will be gathered in shame and defeat. But then if you keep reading in Revelation 20 and Revelation 21, we're told there are going to be other peoples, 
other nations who will gather and be drawn to the new Jerusalem to bring glory and honor to the Lord. But friends, before all of this prophecy can be fully and finally fulfilled before Jerusalem can possess and express this glorious light. She must first learn to sit in darkness and to accept God's discipline. As we said before, if God's people expect to walk in the light of God's salvation and to serve on mission, to shine that light, then we first have to learn how to sit and to patiently wait in the darkness of discipline. This leads to our second response towards God, which can be drawn from verses eight to 10. Before we can be of use to God, we must learn to accept God's discipline and to wait on his deliverance. Let's look at verses eight to nine. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Now here, Micah is speaking on behalf of the faithful remnant and he is looking forward to God's deliverance. He is confident that though he fall, he shall rise, that the Lord will be a light to him and bring him out to the light. But he knows, he knows not to presume. He knows he ought to wait. He knows that until the Lord himself delivers, he will have to sit in darkness and bear the Lord's indignation, his anger. Well, in the same way, in the same way, God's people must learn to accept God's discipline to sit in darkness and wait and in the waiting to bear the silence, the deafening silence of God. I'm sure that all the defeat and destruction that Israel experienced looked like signs of God's silence and absence and their internal doubts were exacerbated by the taunts of their enemies. Look at verse 10. Notice that question. Where is the Lord, your God? Come on, where is he? Where is he in all of your suffering? I'm, I'm sure it felt like God had abandoned them. But the whole point of verses eight and nine is that all of this suffering is occurring under the watchful eye of the Lord who wants his sinful people to sit in the darkness of discipline. Israel was suffering, not because God was absent, but because he was present in all of his holiness. This, my friends, is discipline that's taking place. And notice how Micah is careful not to move too quickly, to not try and to deliver himself and to restore himself. Micah really has no concept of cheap grace. He won't treat his sin lightly as if it's something easy to pardon and something God can just simply overlook. And so he sits And he waits. He's willing to sit in darkness and to bear the indignation of the Lord. He understands how his sin displeases the Lord. People who have cheapened grace have no category in their view of God for holy indignation or holy displeasure. They they, they just 
They don't understand how God could express those things. They only see God as unconditionally benevolent, always with a smile on his face, always responding to your sin and to your rebellion with, with another, oh, shucks, let's just do better next time. But to those who understand the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God, no better than to rise up and to try to shake off the darkness on their own. Like Micah, they know the importance of waiting on the Lord for him to come and get you. You know, I, I don't have a toddler in the home right now, so I haven't had to issue a timeout in a while. Now, of course, with the baby coming, I, I, I need to, I need to, to, to pick up um, uh, the practice again. But I remember, I remember back then how hard it is for a toddler to stay in timeout because she doesn't like it. It's no fun. It doesn't feel good. So she's going to keep rising up, leaving the corner and asking, daddy, is it done? Is it done? And I'm, I, I remember I always have to remind her, honey, you're in trouble right now for what you did. You're being disciplined. And so you're going to have to stay in time out and daddy will come and get you when you're done. But you know, if the toddler just gets up and ends time out whenever she feels like it, and if a parent just turns a blind eye, well, then all of that discipline just falls short. It misses its purpose for it to be effective. The child needs to feel her father's displeasure over her actions as expressed in this discipline. She must learn to accept his discipline and wait on his deliverance, trusting that he will come and get you when you're done. Well, you can tell in verse nine that Micah is well-trained in this sense. He's been through God's discipline before. He, he must have sat in time out before. And that's why he's willing to wait for the Lord. Notice he says, he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. God is going to execute judgment, not against me, but for me. That means this judgment, this discipline is for my good. So even, even while Micah is sitting in the darkness of discipline, bearing God's indignation, he still believes that God is for me. He's not against me. I know I have enemies surrounding me and taunting me, rejoicing over my fall, but God, God is not one of them. God is not my enemy. Micah knows God, not as an enemy, but as his good father who is disciplining him and his people Israel for their good. And so Micah will sit and he will wait, accepting discipline, bearing displeasure until God comes and gets him. The prophet is teaching us the right way to respond in, in those all too frequent times when we fall into sin. In those times when we fall in sin, friends, we must not cheapen grace. We must not be quick to forgive ourselves and to simply move on. Now, of course, I'm not saying that whenever we fall into sin, that we just need to beat ourselves up 
You know, I, I know many times in my experience, after I fall, I, I don't feel worthy to, to get up out of darkness and, and to walk into God's light. I feel like I, I need to do something first to, to prove to God how sorry I feel. So some of us are keenly aware that grace is not cheap, that it's costly, but then we assume that we are the ones that are supposed to pay the cost. We, we then inflict ourselves with physical pain or we rack ourselves with emotional guilt, thinking that that's going to be enough to pay the cost. But we are mistaken to assume that God requires some sort of heroic sacrifice on our part before he's willing to restore us. No, he only requires one thing. And that one thing is repentance. That's the goal of his discipline to lead us to repentance. And friends, every act of genuine repentance includes within it a sense of remorse. And that's where you acknowledge your guilt before the Lord and you feel the weight of his indignation. And you come to hate your own sin for how it displeases the God whom you love. So what we see is Micah here in his repentance, expressing a biblical remorse. It's those who have repented, who have experienced this biblical remorse. They are the ones who truly understand that grace is not cheap, but costly. It costs God, his precious son. It costs the Lord Jesus, his own life. So I, I know friends that some of you are sitting in the darkness of discipline right now. Because of the consequence of some sin in your life, you're experiencing a temporary loss of peace and joy. And I know it's not fun. I know it doesn't feel good. And I know you're tempted to just get up and to be done with it. But along with Micah, I plead with you to patiently wait, to accept the Lord's discipline and to wait on his deliverance. I don't know how long he's going to make you wait, but I do know like any good father, he will come and get you when you're done. Trust in God and his goodness over you. Now, I think the only way you can endure the darkness of discipline without it devolving into a state of, of hopelessness and depression is really by remembering and resting in the incomparable nature of God that's highlighted for us in verses 18 to 20. This is how Micah concludes his book. And here we see our third response to God. If you hope to endure the darkness of discipline, then you must trust in God's delight to love and pardon his people. Let me read starting in verse 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Now notice with me, this great contrast between what surprises modern people about God versus what surprised the ancients. You see, nowadays, nowadays people are aghast at the idea of a God who judges or punishes what kind of God would be angry at us? What kind of God would send people to hell? 
People today assume that God is quick to pardon and ready to pass over sins, especially theirs. But notice how the ancients like Micah were aghast at the idea of a God who actually pardons iniquity and passes over transgressions, who does not retain his anger forever, but delights in steadfast love. That's what surprises them. That's why they ask the question, who is like a, who is a God like you, Lord? Implying that there's no other God like this. We've never heard of this before. That's because the ancients like Micah, they knew how serious sin was. Sin is an infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. And so they knew God could not simply pardon sin by just ignoring it, by sweeping it under the rug. He could not downplay and ignore sin and still remain to be God, to be a holy God, a just God, a good God. He needs to be angry at sin and he can never ease off on that anger or else he'll no longer be that holy, righteous God of the universe. But then Here's the good news, my friends, the good news of the gospel. God has made a way for his just anger to be fully satisfied and our wicked sins to be fully punished. And yet at the same time, he can pardon sinners like us passing over our transgressions. Ancient people could not see how this could be. This juxtaposition of justice and mercy was just incomprehensible. It was incompatible. There's no way in their minds that God could do both. He either punishes sin or he pardons sinners. You can't do both. But Micah looked through eyes of faith and he saw an incomparable God who can do far more than we ask or imagine. He knew God would somehow make a way to accomplish both. And one day he would vindicate all of his doubters, all of his scoffers. Did you notice how back in verse nine, how Micah says, I'm waiting for God to bring me out to the light where I shall look upon his vindication, God's vindication. Now you would have thought that Micah would have said, I, I want to come out to the light. So, so then I can look upon my vindication so that I can be, I can be counted right before God. I can be counted righteous, but no, it says that he's going to come out to the light to see the Lord's vindication. It's the Lord who needs to be proven right to be proven righteous. Now, why would that be? Well, just think, th- think about all the times, for example, when a president would pardon a convicted criminal, usually in, in those moments, it, it's a hotly contested and controversial decision to issue a presidential pardon. It's usually objected to by many people, especially the victim or the victim's family. In many cases, those opposed to a presidential pardon will consider it to be a travesty of justice and will accuse the president of being unjust and impartial in his judgment. Now, if that's how people react to the pardoning of convicted criminals, if they consider it to be a travesty, then how much worse would it be for God to pardon you and me? Or did you think that your sin and my sin 
is any bit less serious in the eyes of God than the crimes of a convicted criminal. You see, friends, if we understood the seriousness of our sin and how God is perfectly just and impartial, then we can better understand why some would consider his pardoning of sinners to be a travesty of justice on a cosmic scale. That is why God himself needs to be vindicated. He needs to be proven to be righteous. Now, Micah didn't know how exactly this was going to happen, but he did believe that one day God will make a way to pardon the sins of his people while not denying his justice. He will find a way to satisfy the demands of his holy law without destroying his frequently sinful people. Somehow, some way God will be vindicated. Micah believed that one day we shall look upon the Lord and we will declare him to be just and the justifier of sinners. Now, from Micah's perspective, he still had to wait for this day to arrive. He had to look forward to that day. But of course, for us, we now look back. We look back to that day when, as stated in Romans 3.25, when God put forward his son as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's another way of saying that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross where he shed his blood, it fully satisfied the demands of God's holy justice. And as the verse goes on to explain, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He pardoned sinners like Micah which could have been considered a travesty of justice. But Romans 3, 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So friends, what this means is that the cross of Christ is that place where this perfect juxtaposition of God's justice and mercy are displayed in perfect harmony. It's where God pardoned our sins, not by overlooking them, but by putting them on the back of his son who bore our sins and took away our transgressions by paying for all of them and then casting them into the depths of the sea, never to resurface to accuse us again. And why did God do all of that for us? Why did he make this way of salvation? Well, it's not because we're such lovely, lovable creatures. It's not because we've proven our love and loyalty to him. No, it says here that it's because God is committed to his steadfast love, his own commitment to love. Listen to verse 20. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So Micah is reminding us of how committed the Lord is to the love that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember that, that God only committed himself to one family out of all the families of the earth. And that means God really has only one plan of salvation. There, there is no plan B. It is Israel and Israel's Messiah or bust. There's really no other option. And that is why Micah 
is confident that God will see his plan through, that he will bring us out of darkness. He will bring us into light. He will have compassion on us again. It's because the Lord is committed to showing steadfast love to his people. But you know, that's not all that we can say. Look back with me at the end of verse 18. Let me just show you one last thing. At the end of verse 18, it says, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. So look at that. God is not only committed to showing steadfast love to sinners like us, he actually enjoys it. He delights in loving you. That, my friends, is our hope. Our only hope rests in God's own joy in loving us. You know, I I know for some of you, you really need to hear that today. Because you know that God loves you because you've repented of your sins. You trust in the gospel. You know that he loves you in some kind of abstract way. But in your mind, he does it begrudgingly. He loves you because he just has to because he swore that he would. He's just committed to seeing it through. That's why he loves you. But no, friends, I hope you see now in verse 18, I hope you see the smile on God's face whenever he pardons you. Beloved, know this, that God loves you, not because he has to, but because it is his joy, his pleasure, his delight. I love you. Take hope in that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the book of Micah. Thank you for all that you have shown us about yourself, about ourselves, and about your plan of salvation to be finally and fully fulfilled in the person of your son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for this word that you delight to show us steadfast love. May our joy be wrapped up in your joy in loving us. Oh Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.